What is SCC? What does it mean to be part of Southport Church of Christ? So our vision here at Southport is about following Jesus, transforming lives. This is the mission Jesus calls us to, that we're not just a church of six pastors, but we're a church of over 600 ministers. Amen. Very good. Thank you, Zane and Katie. Hey, uh, the, the current information is about 25,000 people have lost their lives uh, in Turkey and Syria as a result of these uh, significant earthquakes, um, but they are still pulling people out alive, uh, which is uh, amazing. It's miraculous. They will be truly miracles now for people to survive that. And so uh, we've just prayed there, Zane and Katie, but can I just encourage you as you pray throughout the week to really be in prayer uh, and consider the possibility of contributing. Uh, that would be great. Um, uh, Steve Peach is my name, if you don't know me, if you're visiting with us today, great to have you along. I'm the ministry team leader here. Lots of things in our service, uh, very exciting. Um, I hope this is not a distraction for you. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, stuff here that you might be able to see. Uh, I was just anticipating a long service and so <laughs> we've got a few snacks. Just to keep me going. <laughs> you don't need snacks to keep you going. Don't say that to me after the service. We're about talking about vision today, where we're going as a church. Very exciting. It's the 12th of February, 2023 already. Can you believe that? Welcome to the 12th of February. Uh, the question we're going to answer today is this. Why is it important for me, for you, to understand the goodness of of God. Uh, as a church here at Southport Church of Christ, we're about following Jesus, transforming lives. That's our vision. That's the umbrella that we work under, disciples who make disciples. But in 2023, we'll have a focus underneath that vision of the goodness of God, understanding the goodness of God. And so that is the question that we have in mind as we launch this year. What is the, why is it important for me to understand the goodness of of God. Uh, my first uh, ministry posting was in a uh, Baptist church in Melbourne, two days a week as a youth worker, uh, and I was doing three days a week as an intern in a youth organisation, uh, my second year of internship. And uh, I enjoyed that year greatly, it was a fantastic year. Uh, there was a second intern, there were two of us doing uh, uh, internship that year, and I haven't actually asked him if I can tell his story, so I'm going to change his name to Larrabee. Okay, so his name's not actually Larrabee, uh, but hopefully that will, you know, uh, contain his identity. He was in a very similar situation, three days a week as an intern, and he was working for a church two days a week. He'd just taken over a youth ministry uh, that in its recent history was thriving, an absolutely thriving ministry. He took over from a young lady who was in, a, uh, in her season working there, mid to late 20s. Uh, and she was a dynamic, uh, godly, um, 
wise, humble leader in this youth ministry. And throughout her tenure, the, the youth ministry grew dramatically. In their environment, they had lots of contact in local high schools. They saw lots of young people come to faith. All sorts of young people who were not church-connected commit their lives to Jesus, getting baptised, finding out their gifts, serving in that youth ministry, and it was powering on. Uh, In our region, this was a very well-known youth ministry. And this young lady... Uh, as she continued to lead, was bringing leaders in and uh, Larrabee was a part of that team and he was working with her and in the latter part of that tenure, she was diagnosed with uh, quite a rare cancer Um, and it really shocked the church. She's only in her late 20s. But they were powering on so much that they gathered together, the church got around her, they invested into her, uh, they had prayer meetings, the young people uh, went next level in their faith and they're praying for this young lady uh, and it was an amazing journey. But she got sicker and sicker and passed away. And as a result, the youth ministry just collapsed These young people couldn't understand what God was doing. She was such a powerful force in the kingdom, such an amazing person. Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God do this? What is he doing? We were praying. We were seeking him. And these young people who had seen so much of God and the power in their own lives, their own journey, They had committed themselves to follow Jesus and declared that publicly and had sought to understand him and study the word, then moved away and pushed all that aside and said, this is not for me. How does that happen? How does such a thriving environment collapse like that? Let me pray as we start our service, our message here. Father, as we come before you now, thinking about this topic of the goodness of God and then having to stare at that alongside the challenges we face in life, we can get just a glimpse, even in this couple of minutes, how important it is for us to get our heads around this topic. And so as we take some time, we just quiet ourselves, we pause before you, We ask that through your spirit, uh, through your word, through our own journey, through our experience, maybe our, uh, our history, decisions we've made, you would speak to us and give us insight uh, and courage to pursue this topic uh, as a church and as individuals, as a part of this community. In Jesus' name, amen. So we had a guy preach here uh, recently, middle of last year. His name's Pat Hegarty. He's from Kenmore Church of Christ. Uh, he preached a service here in the AM and in the PM. And in the AM message, he made a statement. He said, uh, God is good for you. He's good for you, but not all Christians understand that. But we don't have time to go into that now. There's a sentence, a bit of a throwaway line in his message, but it stuck with me. It just kind of churned away in the back of my mind. I thought, I wonder if that's, if that's fair income. Is that really a thing? Uh, that people don't understand the goodness of God. Um, I wonder if that's a thing. I did some research, I investigated, and I think it is a bit of a thing. Um, here's some information coming out of uh, uh, countries that are, have a Judeo-Christian 
sort of base, uh, the UK, Australia and the USA. Um, the UK Office of uh, National Statistics, our Australian Bureau of Statistics, same sort of thing, uh, it took a census in 2021 uh, and a part of their understanding of that, they got information back from the UK public saying that 46.2% identify, self-identify as Christians. Um, that's their history, being Christian and the Judeo-Christian um, uh, posture, but for the first time in their history, recorded history, they've dropped below 50%. Um, Australia, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, depending on which part you read and how you uh, analyse the numbers, somewhere between 439 and 48% same year survey asking the question about Christian faith. That's the first time that Australia has dropped below 50%. Uh, and at the turn of the last century, for multiple decades, we were in the 90s, 94 to 97, somewhere in that range from the turn of the last century, saying, yeah, no, I'm Christian, that's who I am. And it had to taper off uh, into the sort of 50, 60, now, first time under 50%. Uh, and I'll see if you can guess what the USA is. <laughs> 2020, it's already up on, already up on the screen. 55% um, of Americans say we are Christians. They're on the decline as well. This posture in modern, Western, developed nations of saying hey, this is, not, this is not my jam anymore. This is not my thing. I don't believe in God. Actually, no religion is the fastest growing piece in the religious statistical data. A guy by the name of Greg Sheridan, uh, who is a journalist, uh, writes uh, for the Australian newspaper, has done for uh, close to two decades, wrote a book called uh, God is Good. Um, is that the name of the book? Uh, God is Good for You. He talks about this issue, he talks about this statistical data um, and the goodness of God. He says that the goodness of God is a foundational truth that we all know about. It's part of who God is, it's his character, but in the Western cultures we're pushing away. And he analyses this data and understands, uh, identifies in the book that it's young adults, sort of uh, the 18 to just under 30 sort of range, who are the fastest exiters out of the Christian church. They're the ones topping the stats saying, no, I'm out, thank you. You, you might be uh, kind of, uh, you know, consider the prospect that it actually is turned around with teenagers because they are stepping out at a lower rate, uh, but the analysis tells us that it's actually their mum and dad who are filling out the data at census time uh, and they're likely to follow suit of the young adults who have gone before them. That's the largest demogra demographic saying, I'm out. And so the question is, are these two things tied? The goodness of God and the lack of understanding of that and this exodus that we see out of the Christian church in uh, particularly Western nations. The Bible, I think they are, I think they're connected. The Bible clearly teaches about the goodness of God. 749 times in Scripture that uh, concept is raised. Here's some Old Testament examples of such, Going right back to Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 3 and 4. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God is creating something here all the way through the Genesis account uh, of creation, and he's saying, this is good. 
This is good. Uh, verse 31, the, the wrap-up of that piece. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Uh, in Genesis 2, God said it's not good for man to be alone. He creates uh, a, a, a companion for him. Adam uh, Penman referenced this last week in his message. We move into Chronicles and we see that God uh, is good. Yahweh is good. A good God. God is good to Israel. He's good to all. This posture works all the way through Scripture, all the way through the Old Testament. We see it time and time and time again. Scripture has always taught this. The concept of God being a good God uh, becomes even clearer in the New Testament. The New Testament talks to us a lot about uh, this picture. Jesus talks about the goodness of God and he uses four different words to describe the goodness of God. Uh, When Jesus is telling us that picture, he's using four different words because there's clear and important information to deliver to us that not one word can identify. But when the translators were bringing the original language into the English, they're trying to make it easier for you and I to understand. And so those four words, which have really deep and nuanced meaning, all get translated into the word good, the word we see as good. Just so that it was easier for us to understand, you have to drill down a little bit though to understand the nuanced meaning. The two words that Jesus uses the most are agathos and kalos. Agathos is about the makeup, the constitution, the external of the thing that is good. Um, so uh, he's a good-looking guy, uh, you might say, of a person, um, you know, around about you. He's a good-looking guy. You might say that. Uh, this is good soil, right? If you're describing soil, this is a good coffee. You go to the coffee shop. This is a good coffee. Um, the externals, the makeup, the constitution of this thing that you're describing, the person or the thing. The word Carlos is more about the internal. It's about the character or the motivation of that thing. Um, uh, this is good soil, right? I, and I can tell you about the makeup of the soil. But when you plant a plant in there, it will produce good fruit. Something will come out of that, internal, etc. And so these are the two words that are talked about in Scripture, kalos, agathos. God makes good things and he does good things. He's motivated by an intrinsic love and goodness within him. We often see God's goodness like our goodness, I can do good things, I could make a good coffee uh, and I could make a bad coffee uh, and I'll try and make a good coffee and when I do, you know, we rejoice. Uh, But we see that kind of posture with God, but just that God is better at it than us. Actually, the goodness of God is vastly different to that. A.W. Tozer, who uh, was a preacher, uh, church leader, uh, a bit over a century ago, was uh, uh, he didn't write a lot of books, but there's a lot of data that's been drawn from his preaching and his uh, teaching in various aspects, and they've been collated into books, and books have been made uh, since his time. He said this on the topic of the goodness of God. It's very important that we know that God is good. God is kind-hearted, gracious, good-natured and benevolent in, in, in intention. And God is cordial. He is all these things, not in part but infinitely. 
Why do I say that, says Tozer? Because infinitude is an attribute of God. It's impossible for God to be anything and not be that completely and infinitely what he is. So when God is good, it's not that he's just good on this day or that he's had a good night's sleep. He is good. He is properly good. Infinitely good, says Tozer. It's possible for the sun to be bright, but not infinitely bright because it's not the only source of light. There are lights in here, for example. It's possible for a mountain to be large, but not infinitely large. Only God can claim infinitude. There are other mountains around, right? It's possible for an angel to be good, but not infinitely good. Only God can claim that. God is the source of goodness. Toza goes on to say, when I say God is good-natured, he is infinitely so. God is not just infinitely good, he's perfectly good. Even the best Christian doesn't always feel cordial. Or when I type this out, doesn't always feel like cordial. (laughs) That changes the meaning, so I took the word out. Sometimes he didn't sleep well, and though he's not mad, he's living like a Christian. He doesn't feel like talking in the mornings. He doesn't feel cordial. He's not overflowing. He's not enthusiastic. But there's never a time when God isn't. What he is, is what he is always. So Tozer says, I joyously announce to you that what God is, he is immutably. He will never change. God has not changed. God doesn't change. The question is, what has changed? Well, we have. And it stems back to the original sin. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. The human beings that God has created, created in his image with free will, Adam and Eve, Um, moving about, happy under the headship and the leadership of God, walking in the cool of the evening, etc. But they get lured into questioning the goodness of God by the serpent. Did God really say, is the question that's asked in Genesis 3, about the the reference to the tree, uh, about eating this apple? Uh, Eve answers, and then the serpent says, "You you will not surely die, God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll be able to see good and evil. Here's what the serpent is saying to Adam and Eve. God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. There's more good out there. You thought you had enough good, but there's more good out there and God is holding out on you. Bryce highlighted this picture for us two weeks ago in our service, in in the last service in our series on grace. He talked about the passage out of Matthew 20, the first 16 verses, which is the the parable, the story that Jesus told about the vineyard uh, owner and the workers. He goes into town to find workers, he does this four, four times across the day, draws them out to his vineyard and pays them a generous wage. More than would be required. It was a good amount. A denarius. That was a generous day's wage. Some went out at nine in the morning and they heard in this interaction with the vineyard owner who represents God in the story that Jesus is telling, 
I'm going to give you a generous day's wage. Would you? Yes, I would like that. Thank you. Out they go and they do a day's work. But then they get lured in at the end of the day to the temptation of looking sideways. Those who were employed at the end of the day also got generosity offered to them. A blessing of sorts, a goodness displayed by the vineyard owner. I was happy at the start of the day because I was going to receive a generous day's wage for a day's work and I need to work to feed my family. But now at the end of the day, as I look sideways, I'm not happy because the generosity, the goodness that the vineyard owner showed me, he's showing to someone else but in more abundance. E.g., the vineyard owner is holding out on me. He's holding out on me. It's not fair. Here's an interesting question for you. Think about this and answer in your mind. Don't call out your answers. How do you measure God's goodness? Or goodness in general? How do you measure goodness? Typically, you and I will measure goodness through the modern lenses of me and now. This is good. Whatever this is, this is good because it generates feelings in me of happiness and joy and comfort and peace, maybe. And as this thing is happening, it generates those feelings right now. For me, this is good and it's happening now. This is a good time to address the elephant in the room. Come out, elephant. (laughs) The elephant's already out. Whenever you raise the topic of God's goodness, you will have already thought about this, I know. Whenever you raise the topic of the goodness of God, the question immediately pursues it through the door. What about? What does that mean about my diagnosis or the loss of my marriage or the loss of my job or the bankruptcy or the bullying that's happening or the insert your journey here? You talk to me, Steve, about the goodness of God and I'll talk to you about the circumstance that I can't solve. Then you come back to me and talk to me about the goodness of God. We will address that. The first thing I want to say to you as you wrestle with that thing in your mind or those multiple things is I hear you. I I hear you, okay? You're not saying anything but I can hear you through your eyes, okay? We will address that as we work through this series. Here's how the culture that you live in, that we live in today, deals with that tension. The goodness of God versus the battle that I face. Christopher Hitchens, along with his pal Richard Dawkins, were articulating atheist uh, views and sentiment to the broader community for a couple of decades now now, and they wrote some books in 2006 
And according to Amazon, one of the retailers of their books, in August 2007, the book The God Delusion, written by Dawkins, the previous year, uh, when this information came out, was the best-seller, uh, best-selling book in the religion and spirituality section of the Amazon uh, you know, book titles. Closely followed by Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. These two books alone led a 50% rise in book sales of this area, spirituality and religion, over the course of the next three years for Amazon. This is how the, res- the, the response of the culture around us uh, leans into this posture of God's not real and if he's good, if he's real, he's not good. I don't want anything to do with him. I'm ticking the no box in my data. Uh, actually, Greg Sheridan's book, God is Good for You, is actually a direct response to uh, Dawkins' book, God Delusion. Here's another cultural education piece for you uh, as you're taking notes. Robbie Williams wrote a song uh, in the mid-2000s called Feel. It was the smash hit single, no less, of his album called Escapology. This album and this song that was the biggest seller off that album um, propelled him to the next decade of his singing career. Uh, this album went to the top of the charts in over 20 nations, uh, including Australia. Here's a line out of that song, and music does reflect the heart of people. They buy and connect with what they're thinking or where they're travelling. Here's a line out of that song. I sit and talk to God, and he just laughs at my plans. That's Robbie Williams' reflection of this journey of life and how God interacts with it. Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen, passed away now. Uh, I was out for dinner with a friend of mine, Steve, on Friday night, and there was a, uh, uh, a busker at uh, the Cavill Mall there, and he sang a bunch of songs, and Steve's a bit of a muso, so he made me hang around and listen, and uh, they played a song for Queen. Uh, there's a stack of people around, maybe 100 people gathered around. This guy was pretty good. Um, And he sung a song, Need Somebody to Love. This song is about the journey of loneliness and the need for companionship. Uh, Freddie Mercury and Queen, massive band globally, etc., etc. I take a look in the mirror and cry. Lord, what are you doing to me? I have spent all my years in believing you, but I just can't get no relief, Lord. This is the cultural reflection about how people view the posture of the goodness of God and they say, I don't believe it, he doesn't exist or he's not good for me. And I'm pulling back from this. I'm out. I tell you all this because it's important that we understand the direction and the rate of flow of the culture that you live in and its response to Christianity. Here's Sheridan's take on this picture that is happening as the tide rolls out. God is being banished from the public consciousness, he says. There'll be rumours of his presence, reported sightings, fleeting glimpses, but the public culture will be inattentive at best, abusive at worst. 
I haven't got time to drill into that, but you know that that exists. Inattentive at best, abusive at worst. When you can't reconcile the concept of a good God with a world of pain, this is what you do. This is how you respond. So our measure of God, or our measure of good, revolves primarily around me and now. And culturally, as we miss this connection, we've parked God up outside or we're abusing him or those that represent him. That's what the culture's doing. That's why it's important for us to understand and answer this question, why is it important for me, for you, to understand the goodness of God? So let me show you a couple of things that God has been saying about himself for quite some time. He is infinite. He's self-existing. He's without origin. Colossians 1 tells us that. He's abundant in power from Psalms. He's all-knowing, Isaiah. He is holy, Revelation. He is immutable, which means he never changes, Malachi. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is strong and mighty. God is just and righteous, says Deuteronomy. God is good, Psalm 34. God is love, First John. Uh, multiples of these verses have come from the Old Testament, which is not um, a mistake. The list is significant, but it's not exhaustive. When you look at these verses of Scripture, there are literally hundreds that will tell you about the attributes of God. The first eight that are on the list tell us about the nature of God and the things that he does. They have action attached to them. These last two, God is good and God is love, are about motivation and posture. They're very important for us to understand that God is love, perfectly love, can't be anything but God is good, perfectly good, etc. But if you don't believe that, right, when you see that God is strong and mighty and that you are weak and frail, it creates in you a, a fear. He could crush me in a moment. When, it says, when Scripture says that God is holy, but you're not convinced that he's good, you say, I'm unholy. He will cast me out. When you think that God is all-knowing, sees everything, and you say to yourself, I'm a sinner, I do the wrong thing, he will judge me in a flash if you don't believe that he's good, that he will do something for you. These attributes of God, not couched and protected by the heartbeat of God about love and goodness, are fearsome, scary, cause you to run away or maybe posture yourself to say, I don't believe in him. How do I measure God's goodness? Not me and now. That's the culture around us. Can I encourage you to draw away from that concept? We're going to work through this in this series. Rather, think about the concept of God's goodness and his love being shown to us in his presence and his commitment. Not just here and now. God is good for me. I feel good in myself right now. Therefore, he's good actually think about his presence and his commitment. We will seek to reframe that as we walk through this journey. 
God is present and committed. Mark Vieira, one of our elders, as he prayed for uh, uh, the Packers uh, in his just um, sort of pastoral prayer for there, talked about uh, this passage in Deuteronomy where God is speaking to Moses about the call that's placed upon his life and calling him to be courageous because God says uh, to him specifically, repeated in Hebrews, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Okay, I'm present and I'm committed. I'll never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's what we're going to unpack this year as we talk about the goodness of God. We're going to work through, firstly, the goodness of God in the Old Testament. How do we see this picture of the goodness of God come out time and time again, the way God deals with people, tells us about his character? We're going to work through that as a part of a series. Then we'll transition into the New Testament and see how the arrival of Jesus further colours in and gives us clarity on the goodness of God. See how that really plays out in all that revolves around the cross, Jesus' death, his resurrection, pulling him up out of the grave. And we'll also talk about this verse uh, in uh, John 16, verse 7, where Jesus says, hey, it's good for you that I go away. Otherwise, I can't send the helper or the companion, the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for us? We're going to unpack that this year as well. Uh, we'll also talk uh, about a, uh, go through a series in First Peter. And the key theme of First Peter is suffering for doing good. That's the picture that uh, is being unpacked in that uh, story there. It's going to be a good year. It's exciting. And then the second week, we're going to... No, no. Here, let me, let me land with this picture for you. Um, have you ever been to the supermarket? I've been to the supermarket before. A few times. And I've been to the supermarket when they, they, they set up those little tables. Have you been there when that's happening? At the end of an aisle. And they've got a new product. It's on a plate. On a stick. It's got a stick stuck in it. And they'll grab you as you're coming down. Hey, we've got a new cheese. There's a new cheese on the market. We want to tell you about this cheese. This cheese is amazing. You, you have never... Listen, you've never seen cheese like this. This cheese is incredible. It's epic. It's amazing cheese. This cheese is going to change your life, right? That's how good this cheese is. It's so good for you. It's been sourced from very, you know, uh, good products, all, uh, you know, whatever you would say there if you were doing that. All good <laughs> stuff, right? Everything's been looked after. This is good cheese. It's good for your heart. It's good for your, for your liver. It's good for your diet. Uh, it, it helps you parent, you know, whatever. And there's this big pitch as you're trying to round the end of the, the aisle, right? And you're thinking what I'm thinking. That'll do. Hey, listen, I'll, I'll tell you whether this cheese is any good. Give me that stick. <laughs> I'll tell you. You know how I'll tell you? I'm going to taste it and then I'll tell you whether this is any good. Psalm 34 is painting that picture 
of a supermarket in Australia for a guy with limited time. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This is David writing this. Off the back of this journey of Saul pursuing him and him actually finding God while his life is threatened. He gets to answer the question about God's goodness. And he says to you as an encouragement, a song, a a heartfelt plea, as you stand there and wrestle with the concept of there's a good God but this is coming unstuck here for me, he says keep pursuing God, taste and see. Matthew Henry says this process of tasting and seeing the goodness of God involves discovery as well as enjoyment. There are good things that you will find about God as you do this. Just before this, in the book of Psalms still, verse 23, verse 6, which reflects the journey of a battle. This is a a heartfelt plea, Psalm 23. Very well known, often talked about in funerals as we reference the valley of the shadow of death. And the challenges that life throws at us, the first six says, Surely, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So here's some questions for you to think about just this morning and we'll unpack over the course of this series. How do you see the goodness of God? Is your picture of God's goodness more influenced by the culture around you or by the truth of Scripture? Who's got your ear? Is someone in your ear saying, hey, God's holding out on you? Or are you taking your roots deep to find God when the battle comes? Are there things you don't know about the goodness of God? And how do you think that information gap will impact your faith in Jesus. As you learn more, understand more, will it change that? If you were to understand the goodness of God more, what kinds of things do you think might change in your life? You know, when I was reflecting on this myself, I wrote those questions to ask myself before I ask you. And I wrote three answers, uh, and you can use my answers if you want. The more I understand about the goodness of God, the greater my faith will become. My willingness to trust and believe in him. I'll have a greater sense of peace within my heart about the uncertainty that unfolds around me and the things that I used to hold dear as very important I will be more generous with towards others who need help or don't know the Lord. I think the more I understand about God's goodness, the greater faith, peace and generosity will develop in me. Here's the last question. Is the invitation laid out in Psalm 34 something you would be prepared to seek God for in 2023? Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a challenge in that for all of us. I'm going to pray in just a moment, but we see the goodness of God most visible. 
clearest to us in the person of Jesus. The way he lived, the way he taught, and ultimately the sacrifice that he made for you and I that actually enables us to have relationship with God. And so as a part of our conclusion of our service today, we will share in communion together. The stewards will wait upon you. They'll hand the emblems around. There's two cups there. And the bottom cup, there is a piece of bread. And it represents the body of Christ that was given for you to, to be the atonement, to be the connecting point, that he would pay the penalty that you and I most deserve. And the top cup is uh, some juice. It represents the blood of Christ that was shed uh, on behalf of you and I for the remission of sins. It gives us access directly to the love and the goodness of God. So I'm going to pray. The stewards will wait upon us. If you would take those two cups, uh, eat the bread in your own time, and then I'll come back and uh, uh, we'll drink together as a sign of our unity in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be in church today, to bring our hearts before you, to share around the table, to open your word and to think about this uh, foundational concept of, how, of who you are and how you relate to us and the goodness of God. And as we just pause now, we think about the sacrifice of Jesus and uh, the, the eternity-changing uh, act that his death and resurrection are. And we just give you thanks for it. And we just pause now, take some time to reflect on that. In Jesus' name, amen.